Hello from ABA Annual Meeting 2018 in Chicago, Illinois. I'm Victor Lee. I'm Dan Rodriguez. Misha Zaitlin. Bill Hurd. Ellen Rosenblum. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. And we're back. Thank you so much for joining us on the road in the Windy City. Today, we're talking about state attorneys general and federalism in the Obama-Trump era. So I guess to start off with, and this was a panel that occurred earlier today at the uh, ABA annual meeting. But before we start, I was hoping that uh, each of you could just introduce yourselves really quickly and uh, give your title and, um, and where you're from. So I'm Dan Rodriguez. I'm the dean, uh, soon to be the ex-dean, but will still be the Harold Washington Professor of Law at Northwestern University School of Law where I teach constitutional law, administrative law, and a number of other subjects. And I'm the incoming chair of the ABA Center on Innovation. I'm Misha Zaitlin. I'm the Solicitor General of the state of Wisconsin. I'm Bill Hurd. I'm the former Solicitor General from Virginia, now practice at Troutman Sanders in Richmond. I'm Ellen Rosenblum. I'm the Oregon Attorney General, and I'm the immediate past chair of the ABA section of state and local government law. Great to have everyone here. Thank you for joining us. I know you guys have been running around like crazy today. So. I guess just to start off with, I mean, the name of the uh, session that you guys had this morning was State Attorneys General and Federalism in the Obama-Trump Era. I assume most of our uh, listeners are going to understand what that means, but for those who might not, I, I know, I know, uh, William, you gave a really good um, recap of, of everything during the morning. Could you talk really briefly about just what federalism is and how does that apply to federal and state governments? Well, federalism is the constitutional division of authority between the government and Washington. Uh, and the government of the various states, in a nutshell. <laughs> now, uh, Dan, you had mentioned uh, this morning that you talked about the lawsuits filed by state AGs against the federal government that have increased in the last decade under uh, first President Obama and now President Trump. So could you talk a little about why that is? And obviously, if anyone else has anything to add, just uh, please feel free to jump in once he's finished. Well, as we talked about uh, before, as actually one of my co-panelists uh, pointed out, if, uh, there's a, if there's a playbook, uh, emerged as a playbook, as it were, it's due in no small part, indeed in large part, to the efforts, the creative uh, and, and largely successful efforts, on the part of a group of uh, attorneys general from the more conservative states. So let's call them uh, red state uh, AGs, who mobilized uh, in a variety of ways, again, very successfully, under the period of the Obama administration, bring a, a very large number, relatively speaking, of multi-state uh, lawsuits directed toward a, a number of efforts on the part of the Obama administration. That playbook, in many respects, has been borrowed by a number of blue state attorneys general during the first uh, year plus of the Trump administration. So while this is not a new invention, it's really accelerated, the it being efforts on the part of states through their attorneys general to bring lawsuits across the United States. Uh, directed toward uh, uh, toward the actions of the administration. Does anybody have anything that they want to add to that? Or I would add one thing. I think it's important to evaluate the mechanism of attorney general lawsuits against an administration uh, without regard to whether we agree or disagree with a, a particular lawsuit. The mechanism of states acting through their attorneys general to restrain power in Washington that is not being correctly used uh, is a good thing. Uh, of course, there are times when state attorneys general will file a lawsuit that lacks merit, uh, at, but that doesn't mean that the basic mechanism is one that should be discouraged. 
Well, uh, one thing that I think was mentioned earlier this morning was that um, you know Congress has sort of, uh, if not abdicated their responsibility just because of various inaction or political divides or uh, our rules of procedure or whatnot, they haven't been as efficient you know, as they have been in maybe in previous years and that this has forced states to kind of step up and, and kind of check federal power. Is there a way that, like, let's say, you know, the Senate decides to end the filibuster rule as, you know, there's always talk about them doing that. Would that then reset things back to the way they were? Or do you think that cat's out of the bag and that, you know, state attorneys general are going to keep filing lawsuits and keep uh, functioning as a check on, on, on executive power? Well, it depends what kind of lawsuits you're talking about. Uh, during the Obama administration, a good number of the bigger lawsuits were were brought to stop uh, actions that the uh, Obama administration had taken um, because they felt themselves frustrated because they couldn't get those same policies enacted to the legislature. If those policies are now being enacted by legislatures, those lawsuits, they wouldn't exist. There are other kinds of lawsuits that aren't based upon that dynamic but will continue to be brought. Uh, it, again, depends upon the lawsuit and the, the nature of the statutory constitutional provisional provision that is the, uh, the justification and the basis for that lawsuit. And I want to add one thing. A number of the lawsuits, particularly thinking of the ones filed recently, that is against actions or inaction of the Trump administration, and I'm thinking, for example, of the efforts on the part of states like California and New York and others to push back at what they see as a lacuna in federal action in the areas of climate change and the like. Those will not dissolve, even if, as you, as you imagine, the Senate or House of Representatives starts enacting legislation. Because the whole point of many of those lawsuits is about federalism, namely the prerogatives that the states believe that they have to go further than federal action, to go further than federal action because of their prerogatives under, under, the, uh, under the Tenth Amendment. Insofar as there are some states who are out there ahead of the federal government and perceive their authority to act in that particular way, that will not disappear regardless of what Congress, uh, what Congress does. Um, but, but I would like to also add that, you know, as, as you're aware, um, many of the actions that state attorneys general have been taking pertain to actions by federal agencies uh, rolling back rules, not implementing rules that were passed during the Obama era, and at least in, in many of our views, including my own, um, not following proper processes under the Administrative Procedures Act and such. I don't think that's going to go away unless those rules are no longer pulled back upon or delayed as they have been. And that pertains to so many federal agencies, uh, both in the environmental area, obviously with respect to education, student debt, you know, many other, just you name it, just about any agency currently. And so, I mean, and, and one thing I think uh, I was curious about just in general, obviously now we're all talking about judges, we're all talking about, you know, the big one, <laughs> um, Justice Kennedy, who, who, who you clerk for, Misha. One area that the Senate has been very successful is in the confirmation of judges, and part of that was they, they eliminated the uh, filibuster for that confirmation process. So how does that affect these lawsuits going forward? Because obviously judges have to behave apolitically, but if the judiciary becomes overwhelmingly conservative or, you know, let's say overwhelmingly liberal if, if, a, if a new administration comes in soon, how does that affect these attorneys general going forward? Because obviously, you know, would that discourage them from filing suit if they feel like, okay, well, I'm not going to get a fair hearing in the Ninth Circuit or I'm not going to get a fair hearing in the Fourth Circuit? Well, there's always, there's always some court that attorneys general can, can file a lawsuit in where the judge may be more to, uh, to their liking. Uh, I would add that one of the uh, accomplishments of this administration has been its ability to nominate and have confirmed uh, judges who take the Constitution seriously and who uh, are devoted to interpreting the law and, and not to making the law. 
And well, I'm I not going to rise to oh, that bait because that's outside the scope of our topic and a topic for another for another time. I'll just register my my uh, my qualification on that on Bill's comment. But to come back to your question, let me say this: whether it will discourage. Let me make it more an assertion. I think it will not discourage these lawsuits. One point that was raised in our panel earlier is what state attorneys general are often doing is is giving effect to the will of the people. And the people means the people within their particular state. So from, from that vantage point, if and insofar as they believe that they are representing their citizenry by bringing these lawsuits, even if they don't prevail in these lawsuits, I think those those incentives to continue to bring these claims will continue. Whether and to what extent they will they will have less of a chance of prevailing if the they, for example, are blue state AGs bringing lawsuits in a world in which there is a more conservative judiciary. Exactly to your point, they're probably going to have a hard time. But I think they'll they will. I agree with the panelists. There'll always be room and incentives for uh, for these state officers to implement the will of their people and bring these suits. We have every intention of continuing to bring these lawsuits. Uh, not only because of the will of the people, but because we think that we have really valid legal claims and we have an excellent judiciary in this country. And true, it may become more conservative, uh, but it also swings the other way, uh, as it did during the eight years of the Obama administration. We have uh, judges on both sides. A lot of the judges who've ruled already in our cases were appointed by not by Democrats, but even by, by President Bush. Just to add to that, I think the lawsuits will be brought. But I wouldn't be surprised, especially if Justice Kavanaugh gets confirmed, if some of the arguments to support those lawsuits are framed in more originalist, textualist terms to appeal to the judiciary. And also, just like one caveat to what you said, the filibuster for lower court nominees was, of course, eliminated by Harry Reid and the Democrats in the last administration, not, not more recently. I didn't mean to imply that that was a, a McConnell thing or that was a Republican. I mean, both parties are very skilled at playing the filibuster game when it suits them and, and, and railing against it when, when, when it doesn't suit them. So one area that I thought was interesting from the morning panel was you guys, was uh, everyone talked about, um, you know, sort of areas of common ground that AGs from both sides of the, or many sides of the, of the political divide can agree on, like combating the opioid, opioid crisis, data privacy and whatnot. And I mean, were there the tobacco any other, settlement. The tobacco probably settlement. Yeah. a very historic example in our recent American history of the AGs coming together, states coming together, and seeking common common ground to the great benefit of, of the American citizens. Yeah, I think it's important to note that uh, state attorneys general from both parties are far more collegial and cooperative than what we have seen in Washington in Congress in the past number of years. Uh, and it's unfortunate that Congress cannot emulate the state AGs and ability to act collegially and cooperatively, uh, even when they disagree. Our National Association of Attorneys General, also known unfortunately as NAG, uh, has a process for uh, sign-on letters. And the, uh, when it is a NAG sign-on letter, we always start out with one Democrat and one Republican uh, signer. And we often are very successful at a bipartisan letter by following that practice. There have also been some bipartisan lawsuits challenging federal overreach. There was one lawsuit that, that we in Wisconsin led that states like Vermont joined against the, uh, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. That was a bipartisan effort, and I found that particularly gratifying to, to have a bipartisan pushback against agency overreach that, that multiple states could agree on. And so, um, I, know, I know you're never supposed to say this, but I've, I do have one last question for you, Ellen. One thing that you had mentioned during the panel that I thought was very interesting was that you talked about how before you decide to file, uh, to, to bring suit or to do anything, you, you talk to your staff, you talk to your constituents to see, like, you know, 
who's who's actually being harmed by uh you know by by whatever you know it is that that you're looking at uh filing and whatnot how do you balance that with your because obviously you know you're you're in the, you're in the political sphere you have uh you have your ideology and whatnot how do you kind of balance that with your ideology and what do you do if they're in conflict I don't really feel that I have an ideology, so I guess I'm going to challenge the question. I look to see whether or not the people of Oregon have been harmed uh, in a significant way. I look to see what would be involved in terms of the use of resources, and that's why I frequently join with other states, because some of them actually have more resources than I do, and we can share in terms of that and and also our expertise. And I also look at the legal theories to make sure that we have a valid, non-frivolous claim to be brought. And then I make a decision with my staff whether or not we're going to join a lawsuit, sign on to a letter, join or write some comments, draft an amicus brief, all the various options. There's a whole sort of, you know, cafeteria of options and ways that we can enter into this. But I never do it uh, to the expense of the work of attorneys general on a day-to-day basis in representing state government and the people of our state in other, in other ways. All right. And before we close it out for today, uh, if our listeners would like to follow up with any of you, what's the best way to reach out? You can find me on Twitter at Dean D.B. Rodriguez. This is Misha. I don't tweet. <laughs> uh, this is Bill Hurd. You can find me at uh, Troutman Sanders' website. That's Hurd, uh, H-U-R-D, William Hurd. I think you can try hashtag Ellen Rosenblum, or I'm also on Facebook. Great. I want to thank our guests for joining us today. And we also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you've heard, please find us and rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.